Hello, you're listening to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. I'm Colin Wood, Managing Editor of State Scoop. This is our data episode, and specifically, we're taking a look at how some states are applying data to their cybersecurity efforts. Our guests this episode are Matt Singleton, Oklahoma's CISO, and Joshua Spence, Chief Technology Officer of West Virginia. I think this was a particularly fascinating episode because in these interviews, we get into how these state IT leaders are thinking about risk. And in West Virginia in particular, the shift to using data to align policy with where the most harmful threats might be uh, makes so much sense that it's a little surprising that we've only heard it talked about seriously within the last few years in state government. State Scoop has run a few stories on it, but I think it's an idea that deserves a lot more attention because it just makes so much sense. One final note, this episode was sponsored by Alteryx. So stick around after the initial interviews if you'd also like to hear an interview with Andy McIsaac, who's their Director of Solutions Marketing for Public Sector. And off we go. Hey, this is Josh Vance. Hey, Josh. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. Thanks for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Sure. No problem. So I want to get into the state's new deal with Galvanize and for the new risk and compliance work. But but first, I wanted to start by asking your favorite question. Do you know what it is? <laughs> Are we secure? Are you secure? Yeah, that is my favorite question. Well, what do you and what do you what do you tell people when they ask you that? Yeah, that's where I, I, the are you secure? Uh, I think the problem with that question, and I, and I try to indicate it, it's it's we're viewing cybersecurity as a problem problem to be fixed, and um, it it begs for a yes or no answer. Um, and, and if you give the yes answer, you, you're then I think it, it that beg begging you that yes or no answer. Um, it put it runs a risk there of of being interpreted that we're 100 percent secure that no breach can take place and and there's not an entity out there that leverages technology that can claim that um because it always comes down to risk and then of course the way i i try to give the analogy is um just pretend i'm the fire marshal and ask me if the building's fireproof uh most people immediately light bulb kind of goes on recognizes the risk does not justify the cost of making buildings fireproof uh but the risk of fire still exists. So what do we do? We put in preventive measures to prevent the fire um, and we put in responsive measures so that a fire occur. And, and that's the appropriate approach. And that we have to understand that the risk management approach is the direction we have to take with cybersecurity because it's always going to be an issue and it changes rapidly. Uh, it's very dynamic given the fact that it's it's um, you know, a component of an industry that moves very rapidly. Um, so the better question is, are, do we understand our critical risk and what are we doing about it? That's the much better questions to be asking. Right. All right. That's great. So with that framing in mind, uh, take us back to the state's work with the National Governors Association and how that led to this recent project. Yeah. So, so the uh, National Governors Association, so they put out a, a policy academy um, opportunity for states to apply. And state of West Virginia applied to participate, and our intent was to um, work with NGA to better understand um, the risk approach to cybersecurity and to focus on how do we shape potential uh, law around that 
and then communicate that as a draft bill to the legislature and be able to communicate to the legislature on why that we felt it was a um, the approach to take. Right. And uh, so that's that was the project um, that we worked with NGA to complete. So phase two was to find a solution that would provide you information so that you could sort of comply with the standards and the uh, the new rules that you'd set up. Is that is that right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, the phase one was to, to establish the law and then the law would it and I'll touch a couple points on it couple big things it did. It established both the chief information security officer position within state code in West Virginia. It established the cybersecurity office, a component of the West Virginia Office of Technology. And then it gave the CISO the authority and responsibility to have to carry out that cyber risk approach um, to collect the appropriate information um, and, and develop a governance program over that um, by which the program would be, be, would be implemented and managed. So we got that laid in the law, and then we went down step. Step one was we contracted a company to help us start figuring out the governance aspect of this so we could document what are the policies and procedures of this program. Uh, let me give you an, uh, kind of that simplistic example in the sense of to do a risk approach, you're going to have to have data. So you have to do risk assessments. So one of the things that we needed to establish is what's the standard of our assessments? Um, do we have a standard? And, and we, we, so we evaluated that and we've settled on the cybersecurity framework as our standard. And then, this, you know, and then another question that we, we kind of go from there is, well, well how are we going to determine when agencies have to do an assessment and how often? And, of course, to, to figure that out, that might also be um, based upon the uh, understood risk to that agency, because some agencies may have a significant um, amount of sensitive data or a very important uh, operational function and need to conduct the assessment more frequently than an agency that doesn't have those parameters. So it won't be a one size fits all. And so the company, the consultant company, um, is helping us draft all of that. And then in addition on their list, uh, they would help us pilot the implementation of the program um, initially with two agencies. And then they're also um, helping us write the procurements that there were two procurements that we were identified would likely be follow ons in, within later phase of the project. The first one being a tool, uh, an application designed to intake and um, uh, do help us do the analysis to produce that single pane of glass on where the cyber risk is hmm. um, and what level, you know, where that critical risk is. And so that was the first one. And then, of course, that's where uh, the state awarded to galvanize for their solution to, to be that uh, tool. The second procurement, um, which the contract, uh, the consultant companies on the hook to help us write, is around the security assessments themselves. We want to put on contract um, the security assessment um, ability under contract. So that way, these agencies, they will have a defined cost associated based on that contract so that they can forecast, because obviously there is a cost to doing an assessment if it's outsourced to a third party. Um, and in some, in, mo in some cases, that's going to be the direction. In some cases, it may actually be allowed that uh, an agency with a lower risk profile may be doing a self-assessment. By putting it on contract, though, we give them a price. They know how much to predict in their budgeting, and, and then therefore they can actually meet the requirement. And then... Um, I'll back up one more on this piece that I think was really big that we championed. Um, 
So we'll collect the data from at the agency level, um, and then we'll be able to, the intent is that it's within the system, it's designed to aggregate upward hierarchically. So that way we could say, okay, this agency had an assessment, the assessment's complete, we've now identified cyber risk, First question, do, does any of the risk equate critical risk? Because obviously that's a big deal. That'd be our highest level. And we want to take um, you know note of that and work toward action on that one um, before anything else. But we could tell the agency director, here's your risk. Um, but at the same time, we could then aggregate the resulted assessments of agencies that fall under a single department and a cabinet secretary and be able to report at the department level here is your aggregated risk across all of your agencies that we've done assessments on so far, or you know, in, you know, processed assessments. But then ultimately be able to take all the department's data and aggregate it to be able to give the governor a holistic perspective under the executive branch. Here's the cyber risk associated with all of the agencies. Hmm. And the issue here, why I think it's so important, is we're federating funding out, but from a technical side, there's shared risk because we're all interconnected some way, shape, or form. So what we don't want is agencies that, for whatever reason, you know, they, they are they're making a, a concerted approach of really spending funding on security, but maybe their risk from a from a big picture scale presents much lower risk to the state than another agency's. But yet we're spending money to reduce a risk that's lower. But we can't know that if we don't aggregate it. So that, that I think is a really important piece because we all recognize the funding is significantly limited in this space um, and it's not cheap to address the problem. So we, we want to make sure we understand it from that big picture. Right. Yeah, this loops back to what we started with, which is that you're never completely secure, but the best you can do is within this sort of zero-sum pool of money that you have for, for cybersecurity that you're using it the best you can. And insofar as these agencies are interconnected, you're, you're making smart decisions on your, your cyber planning. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the challenges, I think when you're asking for money around cybersecurity is it's this enigma, right? To some extent, technology or even cybersecurity, some people, you know, I hear this stuff and I'm not a tech person, so I'm thinking matrix screen, green characters, I don't understand, just rolling down the screen. And then you kind of couple that with, this thought that you're trying to do something in prevention of what might happen. So then there's this element of insurance, right? The return is really, are you actually preventing something that could happen? And if it would happen, would it re really result in, in that um, significant impact to justify the cost? By doing the risk analysis and being able to show it as critical risk, we help empower the agencies to make justification for budget requests to address their problems. And it's not just, um, hey, we need to spend more on cybersecurity. We need to spend more to address this problem. And we're being more specific. Hmm. And so I think it's a lot easier then for um, you know, state leadership to be able to see that, understand that in a, in a way to where they're like, okay, we, we recognize what's happened here and we're, we're prepared to allocate the funding for that issue. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so how, how are you choosing the two departments or agencies that will initially pilot this? Uh, it's a great question. I think at my level, I, I, that's a, I'm on a little bit of a peripheral of maybe the criteria there. The last update I think I got on that one was they tried to, to kind of based on, um, I think they did an agency, one of the smaller agencies, but 
Uh, and then one of the more larger agents, I think they did it on maybe sizing hmm. is might have been one of the criteria they used. Um, I don't know if it was, it might've been, they might've had some other criteria. Um, and then I think part of it too was, was agencies where they felt like they had strong relationship and, uh, with the agency you know, and the agency was also completely on board because we were asking them to, to, to do some work on their end. Um, so they, you know, they, for them to, take on that burden. We wanted to make sure they were willing partners. Right. Um, so is it too early to say what, what this is finding or if, and if so, what are you, what are you expecting to find? Oh, so I think it's a little too early for us to be able to say what we're finding, um, where, where the end goal was to get to. I think we're, we're still, we're definitely closer. Um, but I think what we'll find, and this is what I, I uh, really hope that we find, because I, I, I think we will, is we'll see commonality, right? We'll see where there, there could be risk across disparate systems and agencies that a mitigating control could cover both. Hmm. And that, I think, we're, is, is where we get significant return on value, return on investment. Um, because if we understand, here's the challenge, on, here's the risk on this one, we've, we've identified the vulnerability and threat, and here's this one. And although they may not be exactly mirrored, the, a security procurement uh, or enhancement could be scoped in a way to where it, it covers, um, it, it provides a mitigating factor to both. And I think that's where uh, we would see the biggest benefit because um, now we would be strategically addressing uh, the critical risk, not just, you know, at the tactical level. Right. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to get into that I think we missed is the variables that go into calculating risk. Could you cover that briefly and talk about why sure. impact is the, the hardest to calculate? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, when you're talking about risk, you, you know, you could start with uh, the vulnerability, the weakness. And um, when it comes to vulnerability, there's a, you know, there's a myriad of tools out on the market to do vulnerability assessment. Um, you know, you can even do it with an open source level tool. But um, knowing what's weak and what, uh, what could be um, exploited is only one, one piece of the puzzle. Uh, the second piece of the puzzle is, is there a threat actually out there capable of exploiting that weakness and so then you talk about threat intelligence and understanding what the what the current uh uh look of what where where is that focus currently at um is it the it's a ransomware attacks uh, and and how and what are the current uh vulnerabilities and and methods that they're using the t um, tactics techniques and procedure ttp that they're using to um to attempt to carry out their attacks. And, and of course you can align that within the vulnerability. So now you, you know, you got the, the weakness you got um, with the vulnerability, you got a threat that that has, that is capable. You, you can go further there and ask is the, the threat uh, likely, you know, is that a likely uh, possibility that the, that the threat would um, uh, exploit that vulnerability and answer that question. But then ultimately, let's say, yes, 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 vulnerability exists, the threat exists, and it's likely that they're, they could exploit it. The, the next part is, so what? And I don't mean that to be flippant. Is what does it do? What is the result of that attack? And, 
in some ways, uh, you know, I try to liken it to like an informational website that might provide some good information about a government service, but in no way is a, is a site that's a portal for access to see your services. Maybe it's just talking about the agency's location, the way to contact them, uh, who's the leadership of the agency, and, that, and that's what the website does. It's just informational. If it goes down, does it have a significant impact? In that scenario, chances are it has a pretty minor, pretty minor impact, um, and that has to be understood. Uh, whereas if it was an application, let's say it was an application that was critical to the state processing uh, state funding, state revenues in a way to where the state could pay out bills uh, that, that the state has to pay out, whether it's uh, payroll or whatever, that applica- an application critical to that function would have a significant impact on the state in, in potentially hours and days versus, you know, months uh, as like the uh, the previous example was. And, and the problem with impact, though, is this is not the technical side. This is the business side. This is why the technology is being used. And the only people that really truly can answer the impact question are the people that understand the business goals associated with that investment. And so that's the challenge is getting that part identified so that when we do identify that the other aspects exist in a high capacity, vulnerability, threat, likelihood are all yes, yes, yes. What would it do if this was exploited? What would be the likely results? And then that's the that, that's the ultimate part of that calculation that will tell us where whether it's critical risk or not. Yeah, that's great. All right. We'll be keeping an eye out to see what happens in West Virginia. Thanks so much, Josh. Hey, no problem. I appreciate it. All right. That ends part one. Now here's Matt Singleton in Oklahoma. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm good, Colin. Good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for making time for me. I really appreciate it. Um, To start off with, could you provide a quick biography of your time at the state and also at Oklahoma University? Oh, yeah. Man, you want me to go way back. Um, (laughs) So, uh, let's see. I was uh, at the University of Oklahoma from 1996 through 2011. Uh, served in various uh, IT leadership roles there. My last gig there was as the director of external relations and strategic ventures, which was, uh, I tell everybody that's cool and fun stuff. Uh, I left OU in 2011 to come to the state as the state CIO for all of our education agencies. Uh, And then a couple of years after that, I moved into the chief operations and accountabilities officer role for the state's information services division uh, the big thing I did there was uh, was tasked with completing the IT unification effort for the state, which um, resulted in 111 uh, uh, agencies moving into the state's uh, uh, central IT services. Uh, and we stopped counting after we uh, identified $875 million in cost savings and cost avoidance. Uh, about 18 months ago, I moved into the state CISO role. Um, and have been in tall cotton ever since, man. Best job in state government right here. Really? Well, that's great. <laughs> that's good to hear. I, I guess yeah. that's maybe not every day, but... Uh... You know, even the bad days uh, are, are uh, exciting. I mean, you get to you get to really kind of see what's going on in, in the environment, who's, uh, who's doing what, and uh, you learn something every single day, man. Well, that's that's good to hear. Well, I, I let's try and uh, 
channel some of that enthusiasm toward uh, <laughs> my next question. Uh, okay. So you, the state last year completed um, building its secondary data center in Garland, Texas, which uh, for more information, go to statescoop.com. But uh, that, that data center project, uh, you, you played a role in that. So could you go into some detail about uh, what your concerns were with, with a project that, like that security-wise? Uh, well, you know, it's going to be the typical things you, you would expect to hear from a CISO, right? So um, the first, first concerns were around regulatory compliance. Uh, you know, you're bringing in a third party to, to do a lot of critical functions. Uh, you need to make sure that we're on the right side of, of any requirements around uh, federal tax information, criminal justice information services. Um, you know, those, those are the those are the big regulatory uh, items that we had to worry about. Um, and then, you know, just because you're dealing with a, a completely separate location, there's some physical security concerns. Um, you know, who, who has access to your equipment? When do they have access? Uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, but we had a great partner in NTT uh, and, and Dell supporting them, uh, and uh, we're able to work through all of those things uh, in a relatively short order. I mean, if you, you look at the overall project, uh, I think it was done in four and a half months, um, which is unheard of in state government. Uh, had a fantastic team pulling all in the same direction and some amazing support from state leadership to get it done. Right. Okay. Well, that's great. So how about ongoing cybersecurity? Um, and I also gathered that there were some upgrades to the primary data center when this project was done also that had to do with cybersecurity and extending these, thereby extending the services that were able to be offered to your customers. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so um, we've done a lot. Uh, man, I we essentially changed out our, our technology stack over the last 18 months. Um, so some of that was as part of the, the TX1 project. Some of it was in flight prior to that. Um, but we we really tried to focus our efforts in cybersecurity around intelligence and cyber threat intelligence in particular. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping that by seeing what's coming, uh, we can respond better. And so as, as I stepped into this role, one of the things I, I asked for was support in developing an intelligence function within the, the state's cyber command. Uh, and they fully supported that. And we've actually been able to build out an intelligence unit within Oklahoma Cyber Command, um, hired on intelligence analysts. They're doing collection analysis, actually producing uh, intelligence products. Um, and with the launch of our Oklahoma Information Sharing and Analysis Center, we're actually pushing those products uh, out to uh, various entities within the state of Oklahoma, both private and public sector, um, including higher education, K through 12, uh, our law enforcement partners. Uh, it's, this has really been a, a great uh, opportunity for us to really show the, the benefits of intelligence uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's a good transition into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is that many states are trying to get more organized in how they approach cybersecurity and that they realize that because of their limited resources, they have to prioritize assessing various risks or to put financial figures to the various risks associated with whatever action or non-action a 
various a given department might take. What role does does analytics play in how you do your risk assessments in Oklahoma? Um, so I think it's a starting point. Uh, you know, you can't quantify everything, but you can absolutely start and ensure you're headed down the right path if you're if you're doing some data analytics up front. Um, you know, part of all this comes back to risk management, right? Um, so we need to understand that not only the impact of something bad happen, happening, but the, the likelihood of that happening. And a lot of times you can't quantify the likelihood. And so, uh, you know, that's still still subjective. And mm -hmm. so you want to overlay that on top of whatever data analytics you can get out of your environment. A lot of the changes we've made over the last 18 months um, and as part of the TX1 project in particular have, a, have given us greater visibility into our environment. Um, and um, really being able to, to aggregate log data, correlate it, and then to some degree start orchestrating on top of that has allowed us to, to have better responsiveness uh, when we do see issues, but then that gives us information that we can then feed into a, a risk management conversation later on with, with leadership, uh, whether that's at, at an agency level, uh, at the legislature, or at the state level. Um, to kind of talk through what what threats face the state of Oklahoma uh, and what we should do about them. Uh, ultimately, yeah, you're trying to get to a, a, a potential cost of, of action or inaction. Um, and I think data analytics really, they help you get to the right place. Uh, they may not give you the exact number, uh, but you're definitely headed in the right direction if you, if you can look at those to start off with. Hmm. Interesting. So speaking of those threats, what, what are the things that, uh, you know, you, you said you're, uh, you know, you're walking on clouds every day, but surely you're, you, you must have a more uh, suspicious or cynical side. What, 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 is, what is worrying you at night? Um, you know, I mean, you can, you can probably pick up any of the, the coverage in the press around specific instances, but... Um, you know, ransomware is continuing to be a concern. Uh, we see a ton of, of phishing campaigns and, and spear phishing campaigns in the state. Uh, we've gotten really good at responding to those, unfortunately, right? Mm. Um, in terms of, of what keeps me awake at night, though, is, um, you know, the, the advanced persistent threats. And you see things like the, the SolarWinds uh, supply chain attack. Um, that's an area where a lot of organizations are vulnerable. They're not doing third or fourth party risk management. Uh, and that's an area that most organizations are gonna need to mature quickly in uh, in order to, to have good defenses moving forward. I mean, APTs are, are broader than just uh, third and fourth party risk management, right? Um, but this was an area that we, we saw right out the gate that we wanted to, to improve our security posture in and so we've made several investments in talent and in, in technologies to help us better vet our, our industry partners before we bring them on and actually starting to look through uh, some of their providers and, and ensure that, that those individuals, uh, those individual organizations have good cyber postures and cyber uh, practices in play. Um, yeah, that's probably all I want to say about that. A APTs, uh, I think if you talk to any any CISO, um, that's probably the thing that keeps them awake at night, um, just knowing that 
there are people that are well resourced uh, and talented uh, that may be targeting specific organizations and, and have the capacity to, to get in and, and uh, hang out for a while before they're discovered. Right. Given that these threats are seemingly getting greater and more frequent every year, what is, if not the solution, what is the path to turn that around from state government's perspective? Um, well, that is a big question. Um, I think doing things like what we're trying to do with the, the Oklahoma ISAC, um, finding ways to partner with other organizations to share intelligence, um, share indications of compromise, share remediation paths. Um, really, it's 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 almost taking more of a collective approach to cybersecurity, I think, is the answer to that. So you've got there's there's been a few states and I, I think uh, I think your organization has actually covered some of the work they're doing up in North North Dakota around uh, shared security operations centers. Mm -hmm. um, those are those are certainly interesting approaches to solving this problem. Uh, I think it's going to take a combination of, of operations and intelligence to, to actually do it, though. Sure. All right. Well, we started on a cheerful note and then I dragged us down into the into the mud. <laughs> so that's maybe that's a good place to stop. <laughs> well, even even in the mud, Colin, this is this is a fantastic place to work. Um, the support that we have from state leadership, I, I could not ask for more. Um, we're in tall cotton just about every single day of the week. And uh, even even when we are dealing with some unpleasant things, uh, the organization they've allowed us to build uh, to, to serve the people uh, that serve Oklahomans, uh, that's really, it, it makes it all worth it, man. All right. That does it for our interviews with officials. Now here's State Scoop's Jake Williams with Andy McIsaac. We are here with Andy McIsaac, the Director of Solutions Marketing Public Sector at Alterx. Andy, thanks for being here. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. So, Andy, broadly, where were state's data and analytics efforts before the pandemic, and, and what changed in the immediate response? Yeah, I think you'll find that you know states were all over the place. Um, there were definitely some states that, that had, I will say, more robust analytics capability um, that when you know the pandemic hit, um, they were able to transition or pivot um, some of that analytics capability to really address um, the significant challenge. Um, you know, what, what I, when we talk about COVID, at least, you know, when I talk to a lot of people about COVID, while it was a significant public health challenge, uh, it really was a data challenge. Um, you know, the need to access and, and analyze huge swaths of data, uh, identify new data, combine data from many different sources. Some state agencies were able to do that. We have one state that we work with, you know, they were already gathering data from, you know, 113 different state agencies to tackle things like the, the opioid crisis or to identify, um, you know, overspending or, or duplicate payments in, in the procurement system. COVID hit, they were able to take that capability and, and pivot it uh, and really uh, start addressing some of the additional data challenges uh, around, around COVID. Other states, you know, unfortunately found out that their systems were just not up to the task. Um, Legacy-based systems, systems that required COBOL programming, um, they weren't able to address the, the influx of things like requests for uh, unemployment support. And, and so you, you have a, a real uh, 
real mix of, of where, where states were. And I, I just think the states that were, you know, already had a robust analytics capability uh, were better able uh, to, to adjust and, and other states are, are making up ground now. And, and you know, we, we talk about making up that ground for a lot of states that means upping analytics. So how are states upping their analytics games uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? I, really, I, the big thing is auto- automation, right? Um, is really automating uh, key processes uh, around the, the analytics lifecycle, uh, things such as you know being able to, to, to prep and blend uh, data and, and do that automatically and systematically, uh, and then automating the ability to to prep and, and get that data ready for for higher levels of advanced analytics. Um, you're also looking at you know you know leveraging new sources of data um, and and gaining uh, new insights. Um, to improve, uh, you know, not only improve the insights, but also improve um, the preparation and even the, the, the policy, um, you know, development going forward. And, you know, we heard just recently from you know, New York City, and while New York City was obviously a, a focal point of, you know, a lot of negative aspects of, of COVID, um, they also said they learned a lot. Um, you know, they learned a lot about food insecurity uh, in a large urban setting. Um, it, you know, that was a challenge that maybe nobody, you know, really understood or, or they definitely, but they definitely understand it a lot better now. Um, and, you know, so if there was a bright side uh, to COVID is the idea that it did uncover the need to look at um, new data, new sources of data uh, and glean new insight so they can better better prepare for the, the next thing. Hopefully we don't have another co- uh, a repeat of COVID, but, you know, whatever the next challenge is, uh, and then they can put uh, policies and procedures in place to better address uh, and be more prepared to respond. You, know, you talk about the next thing, and, and I think it's something that I find myself doing a ton in this space, but we, we always are talking about what's next, but we sort of neglect to mention that we still remain very much in pandemic response mode. So in this current moment, what do states need to be thinking about and working on when it comes to data and analytics uh, as they continue their response and get us closer to hopefully, as you said, the end of of this situation? Yeah, I, I think, they, they, first of all, they need to evaluate what worked. Um, there's some you know, really good stories out there where, where state agencies were able to respond um, and, and, and address an issue. Um, you know, we have one state that we work with where, uh, you know, they were, when the schools closed um, and the school lunch programs, school breakfast programs were no longer uh, available, uh, a huge increase came in for requests for uh, nutritional support for, for families. Um, that state was able to look at, oh, we, can, we can't handle this influx. We've got a lot of data coming uh, from a number of different sources that's all over the place. How do we automate that process? How do we take these million, millions and millions of lines of, of data um, and, and automate that process so we can do the eligibility determination and make sure that we're getting uh, the support out to the families because these families can't be waiting weeks for eligibility to be determined. How do we how do we do that in hours? Um, you know, so you know, states are going to need to continue. How are they going to automate some of these critical processes? Um, you know, that really impact the, the lives of, of, of people. Uh, and then look at what worked. You know, what new insights? Uh, you know. Did you uncover and and then build on build on that? What what? How can you now redeploy those capabilities to other areas? Uh, they also need to look at where things fell apart. You know, um, you know, you know, what issues do they have with data and not being able to get access to the the data? Um, how do they improve and better automate the processes so they can streamline things? You know, look at other states that are you know suffering from. Uh, huge levels of, of fraud because of, you know, un, uh, you know, people taking advantage of the uh, unemployment system. You know, how do you fix that, right? So, um, and a lot of that is going to be able to look at, you know, looking at the data and, and, and 
really democratizing that data, automating the processes and making sure that, you know, your, your skilled data resources, you know, have access uh, to, you know, to, to higher levels of, of analytics uh, to glean more insight and remove the day the day to day mund mundane manual tasks that they're sometimes bogged down with and automate that process so they can really focus on addressing the specific business challenges uh, that the agencies uh, focus on or need to focus on. You've talked about it a couple of times and 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 you know one thing that's been a relatively significant change for state and local governments this past year has been that increasing use of analytics automation. What have you been seeing in that realm and 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 how will it scale going forward? Yeah, well, it really, you, you mentioned it, it's all based on scale. And, that, and that's you know, obviously the, the, the value of automation, right? Listen, you, you, you know, state agencies, they, they can't hire all the, all the resources they, they would like to have, right? Um, but, you know, they have some very skilled, some very capable uh, people who have, you know, tremendous um, domain expertise uh, and innovative uh, innov innovation uh, and creativity. Um, how do you unleash that, right? You need to look at, you know, what can we remove off of the plate of so, some of those very skilled resources uh, so they can really get to the task at hand and solve problems. We don't, you know, they don't need to be uh, in, in, you know, manual cycles of, of blend of cutting and pasting from different spreadsheets uh, trying to massage data manipulate data uh, and then you know spend hours and hours of, of doing data prep and blend in a, from a manual perspective and then have to turn around and do it uh, everything all over again the next week how do you automate that how do you schedule that uh, how do you you know how do you streamline that process so they can really get to creating the insights uh, that are going to enable the better policies decisions and really the better uh, delivery of service. And once they kind of figure out um, a way to automate it, you know, for a particular challenge, in a lot of cases, it's about being able to repeat that, um, you know, those workflows uh, and, and the data that's being le le leveraged uh, and, and repeat and build a repeatable process that can be better automated um, you know, to tackle that next challenge. Uh, and, and once one agency does it, you know, a lot of times the, the business challenges are, are similar uh, in other agencies and they, they can therefore be, be used to um, really scale out uh, that analytics capability across multiple agencies. And then to sort of pull it all together, I think that we've alluded to this a couple of times in our discussion, but, but there's a lot of analytics related technology change on the very near horizon what's next for states and their data and analytics efforts and, and how will that change results for citizens down the line? I think what we're seeing, right, really is the emergence, the emergence of the, you know, the, the modern tech stack, right? The um, you know, bringing together a number of different interrelated capabilities around data uh, and the ability to access that data, the ability to analyze that data uh, and then share the insights. So when you look at, you know, the emergence of cloud data platforms like Snowflake uh, and the integration capabilities that you have with a, a, an analytics platform like Altrix, where you can do in-base uh, analysis of, of that data without having to move it from system to system uh, to be able to support you know, the, the output uh, from that analysis, the insights gleaned out to uh, platforms like, like Tableau for visualization or out to UiPath for um, robotics process automation uh, types of deployments. Really what all that means is that you, you've got you know, agencies now that have a more agile and more cost-effective uh, approach to, to data and analytics. Basically what you're doing is you're democratizing uh, the analytics uh, capability across the organization, uh, really in creating you know, more accessible um, advanced analytics capabilities like, like predictive or geospatial or even machine learning. And you can obviously utilize that, you know, 
that increased higher level of analytics capability to generate you know, uh, real outcomes for, for people, uh, for programs, for communities, uh, but also internal processes as well, like, you know, like being, uh, having a better idea of cybersecurity threats, uh, better able to f fight things like fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, so I think you know, having th that more agile tech stack or more agile approach to, um, to data and analytics uh, through a platform like Altris combined with some, some of the other partners I mentioned really ups uh, the analytic capability of, of, of state agencies. So Andy, lots more to cover when it comes to data and analytics now and into the future, but we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jake. All right, that's it for this episode. For more coverage of state and local government IT news, go to statescoop.com.